Well, how's everyone doing this morning? Good? Uh, if you are here and you are healthy, thank God for your health, uh, because there is a stomach bug going around that has uh, devastated some of our church members and decimated them. Uh, I have yet to uh, catch that, so stay away. Yeah. Well, stay away from Aaron, I think. Uh, anyways. I'm excited to get back into uh, our scripture uh, this morning. We, we took two weeks off, uh, two weeks off from gathering here. Uh, August, what was that, 12th, we were at our serve day at Pacific Middle School. That was a great time. Thank you to all of you who showed up uh, and helped paint those classrooms at Pacific Middle School. Uh, Principal Vanessa Banner was very appreciative and thankful for all the work that we did. And it's things like that that continue to uh, build a, re- a trust and a reputation with the school that, have, that uh, we have open doors there. So thank you for those who, uh, who served with us on the All Church Serve Day. Uh, and last Sunday, we were at our All Church Retreat. Uh, it was a great time, the week, fellowshipping, uh, playing together. I had a great time watching new relationships form and ones that have formed grow deeper. Uh, so I'm looking forward to the third one that we'll take next summer, uh, same date or same time frame. Uh, so if you are into calendaring and you're, looking, you're already booking your next year out, uh, that third Sunday in August, uh, we've got the same campsites reserved. So, uh, but like I said, I'm I'm looking forward to getting back into the Bible because before that we worked for through our core values and we were going topical and I struggle with topical. Uh, I think it's very hard to preach topically. I'm just not. I don't think I'm very good at it. Anyways, going through books of the Bible is what we like to do. Uh, it to to me it keeps uh, the Bible central. Uh, it keeps us guarded from error and reading what we want to do into the scriptures. It's, we like to go through the scriptures exegetically, looking through things verse by verse. And as we go through books of the Bible in the verse by verse format, it forces kind of tough passages, our controversial passages, our passages that make, make us uncomfortable. It forces us to deal with those. Uh, what I found is if I preach or follow pastors who preach topically, oftentimes what can happen is you can slide into those comfortable uh, couple passages that you like to preach, you end up hitting the same thing over and over again, and I think going through verse-by-verse format uh, keeps us so that the whole counsel of God is informing us and shaping our minds to think about God. But what we also like to do is go back and forth between the Old and New Testament. Uh, so now we're going through First Peter, and I don't want to keep it a secret about where we're going. We've, we've planned out the next year. Uh, after First Peter, we're going through Judges. So you got commentaries, or you want to start reading about that, preparing. It's going to be a sweet study. Uh, we're going to look at chapters at a time. So it'll be different, but it'll be, I'm looking forward to it a lot. And after Judges, we're going right into Galatians. And that'll pretty much take us to next summer. Uh, so if you're curious where we're going, you want to buy some commentaries, or you see some on sale at Christian Book or on Amazon, uh, that's where we're going. Feel free to pick those up. The passage we'll be covering this morning is 1 Peter 1 through 2. And although you might think, hey, this is two verses, we'll get out of here quick. Man, there's a lot in here, and I'm really excited to unpack uh, what God has for us in these first two verses. Sometimes what I found, too, is when we start a series, the first sermon is often the longest, uh, so you guys are lucky to be here this morning, uh, probably being up close to an hour. Uh, and a couple of you are smiling and laughing. Okay. Just trying to read the room. I guess uh, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the, first, the book of First Peter is set up like many other New Testament letters. It starts with a greeting and a blessing, and then it gets right into the, the body of the letter. And this morning, what we're looking at is that greeting. Uh, we see right from the first verse, if you have your Bibles, you can open there uh, with me. If you don't own a Bible, know that there are some provided on the bar out there. We'd love to give you one. But um, 
you can open your Bibles there to 1 Peter chapter 1, looking at verse 1. The first word in the letter is Peter. So you can assume the person who is uh, responsible for this letter, whose authority this letter was written by, is Peter. Now, most conservative scholars agree. Peter is the one who wrote this letter. Peter the Apostle is the author of this letter, and he wrote the letter in Rome, as is shown by that code word at the end of the, uh, the book in 513. Uh, Peter uses a code name Babylon, which is a way of describing Rome. This is where he wrote the letter. And, and you see in, in 1 Peter 512, too, at the very end, that although Peter commissioned and authorized this letter, a guy by the name of Silvanus actually penned the letter. So he was the guy responsible with actually writing uh, the words out. It says there in 1 Peter 5:12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. And I think knowing who the author is as we start a book makes a big difference. Right? It's the reason that you throw away junk mail, but if you get a letter from a friend, hopefully you, you would treat it differently than junk mail, right? It makes a difference. You might reread it again. If you get a, a letter from a close friend or an email from a close friend, or you, know, you get that email from uh, Daniel at the Mountain Church, you're just going to read it really intently and remember everything that's written in there, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, Peter is responsible for this letter, and, and I think it's, it's, that's important that we know uh, that Peter is the one who wrote this. Peter is the one responsible for this. And if you're unfamiliar with Peter, it's actually, I think, uh, comforting and encouraging and uh, sometimes even comical that God used this guy Peter uh, the way he did. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Peter, I'll, I'll give a brief overview of Peter's life as described in, in the Gospels in the book of Acts. Uh, Peter was one of the closest disciples of Jesus. He was considered to be in like the inner circle, one of the top, the closest three disciples to Jesus. Uh, and he, he became an apostle, which was someone who was commissioned directly by Jesus, someone who met Jesus, was commissioned out uh, to speak on his behalf. It, there was a certain authority that came with it, a special role in the life of the church. Peter went on to be a key leader um, in, in the early church. Uh, but Peter always, he wasn't always this great apostle. Uh, when we first meet Peter, he was a, a fisherman. He was a middle-class fisherman. As you read through the New Testament, you'll see Peter has a lot of ups and downs. He's hot, he's cold. He says really awesome things, and then he does things that make you shake your head and realize, you dumbo. <laughs> Initially, he's called Simon, and uh, he's given the name Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock. It's translated in Greek to Petros, which is where we get the name Peter, and he was given this name after he identified Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus says, you know, blessed are you. Man hasn't revealed this to you. This has been God that has revealed this to you. But in the gospel according to Matthew, literally 10 verses later, Jesus rebukes him and calls him Satan. Okay, so you think, this is like, this guy gets it. Calling Jesus the Christ, he is identifying him as the Messiah. And then Jesus, 10 verses later, Jesus calls him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. This is a little bit about Peter. Uh, Peter tries to walk on water and succeeds. He walks on water, but then gets afraid, and Jesus rebukes him for his little faith. Right? As Jesus is getting arrested in the garden, Peter comes to try to kill a guy and cuts his ear off. Right? The text doesn't say, was he trying to you know, kill him and just see it have a really bad stabbing action or the guy dodged and he hit his ear? It doesn't say. Peter makes big promises to Jesus that he fails on. In Matthew 26, Jesus tells his disciples, you guys are all going to fall away from me. The shepherd's going to get struck, the sheep are going to scatter. And Peter goes, everyone else might fall away. 
Jesus, I'm going to be right there with you. Jesus comes to you again and says, Truly, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. These are the words of Jesus. An important moral of the story is, you don't disagree with Jesus. <laughs> Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, even if I must die, I will not deny you. Of course, we know later, Peter denies him three times. Within that very, within, before the rooster crows. Peter falls asleep on Jesus when Jesus asks him to stay awake and watch over him while he's praying in the garden. And yet at the very end of the Gospel of John, we see Jesus comes to Peter and has grace on him. He asks him three times, do you love me? And every time he affirms, he's like restoring Peter. And what we see in the book of Acts is Peter goes on to be a key leader. In Acts 2, he preaches this awesome sermon. A lot of people get saved. Acts 4 preaches another powerful sermon. Acts 10, he gets this vision in which God reveals to Peter that there's no more partiality. Like the gospel is not just reserved for ethnic Jews. It's reserved for all people everywhere. Every tribe, tongue, nation uh, should receive and gets to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 10, 43, Peter says this, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone. And then what we read about in Galatians 2, Paul has to uh, confront Peter Paul says he opposed Peter to his face because he was distancing himself from the Gentiles and just hanging out with the Jews. In other words, he fell into racism. He was like a racist. Okay, this is Peter. It's this great vision, and then Paul has to oppose him to his face. It says there that he even turned Barnabas, like his hypocrisy even misled Barnabas. And what we see when we look at Peter is, I think, three things that, uh, that give us hope. And I go into this, I go into talking about Peter like that for three reasons. Number one, knowing who Peter is and his history as recorded in the New Testament gives us hope and comfort. If you're, hit, if you're sitting here this morning, you're thinking, how could God use someone like me? I have turned my back on him so many times. I have fallen in, back into deep sin. I've had other Christians oppose me to my face. What this book shows us is that God uses middle-class, rebellious, hard-headed, outspoken, hypocritical people like Peter and like you. There was no one who's too far from the reach of God. And as you flip through the stories of the scriptures, you'll see these characters. They're not great heroes to emulate. Abraham tries to give his wife away twice. Okay, the father of the faith. Look at Moses, David. These guys are not great heroes to emulate. They, have, they fall into deep sin. Looking at Peter gives us hope that just as we are like Peter in our highs and our lows, God is committed to us in seeing us become more like Jesus and using us as witnesses for his glory and for the joy of those around us. Number two, knowing who Peter is and his history as recorded in the New Testament brings humility. Okay, we can't sit here this morning and think, look at that terrible Peter. I'd never do anything like that. Denying Christ three times, I could never do that. It would be foolish for us to think that because of our state or our past or whatever it is, that we could not fall into sin like Peter had, that somehow we are more uh, protected or entitled to foolishness or to sin. We shouldn't think that we should never fail or fall like Peter did and, and shame him. We need to remain humble and thankful for the grace that God has shown us. And thirdly, finally, number three, knowing who Peter is and his history as recorded in the New Testament shows the importance of biblical community. Peter needed guys who were going to call him on his sin and bring him back into a life that's in obedience with God's will. I need that. Okay, I need people to oppose me to my face when I'm out of step with the gospel, and we all need that. 
We all need brothers and sisters around us who know us well, who see our life and will speak the truth in love to us. Who will in love speak the truth and call us back to Christ in a, in a life that's in line with the gospel. So with that brief uh, overview of who Peter is, let's look at who the letter was written to. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are Christians who would be in Asia Minor. This is modern-day Turkey. This, would, this, would, this was thought to be a, a circular letter. There, if it, was, it would go around to the different churches in this area. And when you look at the phrase, elect exiles, uh, highlight that, underline that. That's a very important phrase. The term exile it could mean sojourner or foreigner. It's a person who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to uh, reside there with the natives. And the term of being in exiles is what the Old Testament referred to the Israelites as well, all the way back to Abraham, who's called a sojourner, and Isaac and Jacob and the Israelites. Uh, they were ch- God's chosen exiles. Uh, Peter even uses this term later, exiles of the dispersion. It was, it was thought to be typically used of the Jews. And what's interesting is now that Peter's applying this to the, to the church, it's a reference to saying that uh, the church is that continuation of who Israel was intended to be, God's chosen people. And just as ethnic Israel was scattered and dispersed throughout the area, the church is dispersed throughout the world to be God's witness among the nations. And, and if you saw on the, on the slide there, uh, this, this whole idea of an exile is, is where we get this theme that we'll trace all the way through the book of 1 Peter, uh, the big theme that we are titling the series Set Apart. It's a big thing that we see in 1 Peter, called to be holy, called to be set apart. Uh, this is what we're going to be focusing on this series. And we see this in the election, right in the beginning. Election and salvation, they're set apart. Uh, they're to be set apart in their attitudes and their holiness. They're to be set apart from the passions of the former ignorance, and they're to have purity, as we'll later see in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, they're to be set apart in their speech. They're to be put away slander and, and envy and deceit and hypocrisy. They're to be a holy priesthood. They're to be set apart in their service to the authorities and using freedom for service. They're to be set apart in their marriages. Uh, they're to be set apart in suffering, in the way they suffer, and in the way they experience trials and, and persecutions. And it seems like the background and the purpose of this letter was to encourage the Christians who were suffering during this time. That seems to be the, the a main purpose as why Peter writes this letter to the early church is that they would find hope and comfort in God through their suffering. This is actually a, a distinctive, attractive piece, I think, to the Christian faith is that there's a purpose in suffering. We don't have to wonder is there a, a, a deity out there that hates us, that's punishing us, that there's some sort of karma, you know, we're getting what we deserve because we've lived a bad life? God actually uses suffering to refine us, and this is what First Peter will teach us, that God uses suffering to cleanse us, to leave our faith more pure, more genuine, and it, results, it should result in praise and honor to Jesus Christ. Peter actually records in the letter that uh, he commands Christians to rejoice because they're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And just as Jesus was insulted and was blessed, when we are insulted, we should consider ourselves blessed. This is, this is where the letter is going. Uh, the sufferings talked about in 1 Peter are, are more ostracization and, and verbal, uh, I think, abuse or slander like that. Uh, many of you guys know that around this time, as the letter was written in the early 60s, uh, in, in AD 64, Rome was burned. by uh, It was burned. And many historians think that uh, the Emperor Nero actually set it on fire and uh, burned it down in an effort to rebuild the city greater and to have more glory. And uh, some historians believe that he did this and used Christians as a scapegoat. 
So you might have heard or in the past, if you have any familiar with this time frame, uh, Christians were treated really terribly. They were dipped in oil. They were uh, stuck on pegs and used as kind of lanterns throughout the city. They were treated really poorly. They were, you know, put into arenas and fed to lions. Uh, there was really horrible persecution that was happening. Uh, but this was later, uh, or later than when the book was written. Uh, so the persecution that I think we're talking about here is uh, verbal abuse, discrimination, being ostracized. You get the sense that Peter kind of knows that this is coming. This kind of suffering is happening. Maybe that's even why he wrote the letter, to give them a foundation on what's to come. Uh, Peter was actually killed in that persecution under Nero's reign. Uh, at least church tradition tells us that in about 60, 64, 65. And the letter was written before that in the early 60s. So that's kind of the context for the letter. Make sense? Cool. And I think uh, the, the big principle that I want to take uh, based on verse 1 is that just as the early Christians and the, the audience, the readers that would be receiving this letter were called elect exiles, all those who are in Christ, all of Jesus' disciples are elect exiles. That's a principle that we can glean from this passage. All of Jesus' disciples, uh, all disciples of Jesus are elect exiles. Meaning, this world is not our home. We are spiritual exiles. We don't have the same values, the same uh, priorities, the same uh, loves and passions as the world. At least we're not called to. This, is, this idea is found all the way through uh, the New Testament. Paul writes this in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven as we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a Christian, this term elect exiles means this world is not your home. Therefore, the values, the principles, the way that we live our lifestyle is not to be based on what we see around us. It's to be based on this, God's word. Amen? Christians are citizens of heaven. Before, we are citizens of the United States or wherever country of origin we are from. We are aliens on this earth. We have different priorities. We have a different family. We have a different father. That's why Paul writes, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How easy it is to slide back into uh, the world. How easy it is to be led astray. Uh, this is why we need to be continually transforming our minds uh, through reading God's word. Uh, now, in the first century world, uh, the Roman world was kind of defined by shame and, and honor. That was kind of the society of the day. Uh, and it's a little bit different, I think, than our culture today, which would be more of, uh, you could describe, self-actualization, right? Society based on, on love, and we're really confused on what that word means. Uh, but Although our, our values might be different than what the early church uh, faced or had, or the society and cultures, the messages were different, the principle remains the same, that we're not to have the same as the world. Okay? So how, when we think about our society and culture today, what are some of the things that would characterize it? What's kind of the gospel of the world? What's kind of the message of the world? Greed? Right? Primarily, I think you could boil it all down to selfishness. Okay, and this, this whole idea of self-realization, self-actualization, uh, whether it's through Oprah, whoever it is who, who proclaims this message, that the, the, it can be boiled down to, and I know I'm generalizing, you need to find your truths, right? You need to hold to your truths. They're what most important. You, find, you need to find yourself somehow, whatever in there. You need to just 
bring it out or discover it, realize it. And that's what's most important. Don't, don't have anyone else tell you how to live. Don't have any kind of other God. You are your own Savior and Lord, essentially is the message of the gospel of the world, right? Your identity, your value, your purpose, your calling is found in yourself. So whatever you need to do to discover that, you need to do it. Okay? We have the freedom to do that. And what happens is that it falls into created things. It falls into uh, body image, career, um, sexual identity, food. These are things that we start to value and, and, and uh, really mark our identity or we find our identity in. I don't know if you guys have found that to be the case. Getting some head nods. I appreciate that. We know in the gospel, though, that we are freed from the slavery to things, to self. We're freed to love a God who loves us and wants what's best for us, who seeks, as we glorify him and worship him, he is about our flourishing. So we're freed from being enslaved, and we're freed fundamentally to to be human. Christians have a fundamental difference of what it means to be human. It means growing into the image of God and how you're created to be. It means growing more like Christ. I don't know what someone would say outside of the Christian faith and what does it mean to be human? It might, might sound something like you do whatever you want. You have these inherent freedoms and freedom means doing whatever you want. Instead of true freedom, which is having the right restrictions like a fish living in a fishbowl, right? Christians are those who have turned from themselves and trusted in the person and finished work of Jesus. The message of Christianity is not self-actualization, it's self-denial, it's self-sacrifice. It's mortification of so Christians, we're to live totally different than those around us. And I pray that we would stand out in that, right? If we have someone who is totally committed to themselves and someone who is totally committed to God and others, that person is going to look radically, fundamentally different, right? The way they spend their time, the way they spend their resources, their hobbies, their interests, their passions. And I say all this to get us to think and, and just judge, test our hearts, analyze our hearts, where would someone characterize us as that? In what we watch on TV, in what our lives are consumed by. I know I, I struggle with food. I can often worship my stomach, our food, uh, as my God. I turn to food for comfort and for hope and for happiness. And I've seen this in others with food. Or whatever it is, it, apart from Christ, it, it becomes very self-centered. So we either worship food or we worship our bodies. Right? And in the gospel, we're freed from, from, from doing that. We're freed from worshiping food. We're freed from worshiping our bodies. We're freed to worship God through food and through our bodies. So we're not consumed with overeating. We're not consumed with our body image. We're freed to love God through food. Does that make sense? Is there something I can clarify? No? Okay. If you have questions, I would love to talk with you further afterwards. But anyways, whether it's comfort, sex, family, work, whatever it is, Christians are to live in a way that's different than how the world lives. That's, that's what I'm trying to lay before us. Disciples of Jesus are to seek to live where we're bringing the world that is to come. As Jesus prayed in, in the disciples' prayer, Father, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're seeking to bring the future into the present in the way that we live. So all disciples of Jesus are set apart. They're different. They're exiles. 
And I love the next word that Paul uses, or the word that's in that phrase in exiles, is he describes them as elect. They're not just exiles. They're elect exiles. And what does that term mean? When someone's elected. Chosen. Christians are chosen. And the idea of being elect is continued in verse 2. The idea of being chosen to, uh, to God's, govern, God's sovereign, gracious choice. He said in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So idea there of chosen, uh, elect exiles in the foreknowledge of God. Now when the Bible uses the word foreknowledge, it's not in reference to like God looking across time. He sees time unfold and he sees, well, this person will choose to accept me. So I'm going to choose them. Anyone ever thought about uh, foreknowledge like this? It's kind of more of an American, I think, way of, you know, we, we really need to hold to our, our freedoms and our, our self-will, our choices. But that's not what the Bible, that's not the, the way the Bible describes foreknowledge. It's always related to election. So when it says foreknowledge, uh, it's not that God knew who would save him or not. It's God knowing them beforehand and choosing them. So another way of saying foreknowledge, I, th- I think, is saying foreloved. Uh, later in the, in the book of 1 Peter, we see that uh, Jesus is described as being foreknown before the foundation of the world. It's more than just a, a, a surface level. It's an intimate knowledge that he has, an intimate relationship. It speaks of the idea of a covenant relationship. So foreknowledge goes together with election. And I think a helpful way to think about this uh, is foreloved. So believers are foreknown, they are chosen, they are elected, and Paul's reminding the Christians the, re- the reality of this, this privilege, that they are foreknown by God and they are elected, they are chosen to have a special relationship with him. They are secure as uh, objects of this grace in his hands. Does that make sense? Uh, this, this truth, this doctrine of election, I think is especially sweet. Although right now, if, if I'm first laying it before you, and before you might have the mentality of, I made the choice. It was up to me. Uh, God is ultimately concerned about my self-will. When you start talking about election, and it, maybe it wasn't your choice, and God gave you the gift of faith, and he called you, that, makes, that might make you uncomfortable. I remember when I first heard the, the doctrine of election, I hated it. Because it goes against everything that I thought I believed growing up in the church. I made an exception. I accepted Christ into my heart, right? I chose. I believed. And yet throughout the, the teaching of the Bible, we see that faith and repentance are gifts of God. That it's ultimately his choice. That he is sovereign. Anyone, anyone made uncomfortable by that? Couple? Okay. I think it's healthy. It's natural, as, especially as Western Americans, where everything is about us. But what I will set before you is I think there's five reasons we should cling to this truth because it is sweet. And the more we study it, the more that it grows our appreciation for who God is, the more it makes grace real to us, and I think the more it leads to worship. So five reasons. Number one, the Bible teaches it. <laughs> I got to say that. It's, it's in there. Foreknowledge, predestination, election, you, you have to deal with it. It's what the Bible teaches. It's what we see all throughout the Old Testament and continued on to the New Testament. Number two, the doctrine of election shatters a small view of God and a large view of self. When you have the mentality or perception that God is ultimately concerned about you and, and the Bible is all and God is all about you, that is not in line with what the Bible teaches. God is ultimately concerned about his glory. 
Number three, the doctrine of election humbles God's people. That salvation was not up to their choice, but simply by God's sheer grace. The doctrine of election shatters a spiritual smugness, a pride, a self-centered theology, um, an arrogance. A a way to think about this, and I know that uh, any illustration or image you use to talk about God and people will somehow break down because we're not God, and it's hard to speak about God in, in illustrations. But a way that I, that I thought about this uh, this week that I think might be helpful is uh, a way a baby is born in relation to baby and, and the birth. So I have two daughters, Addison and Avery. Addison is two, Avery is almost six months. One day, they did not decide to be born. They did not decide to be conceived. It was a plan, mostly a plan, to conceive our children, uh, where they were in Stephanie's womb for nine months and they were born. Right? It would be silly and absurd for Addison to brag about her choice in being born. Really glad I decided to do this. Really glad I made it out. Right? Before Addison and Avery was born, uh, we knew her in the womb. We heard their heartbeats. We loved them. And they were born. She was brought into our family. She was given our name. And this is what God has done with us in the gospel. He has loved us before the foundation of the world. He has called us. He's given us his name. His love is set before the foundation of the world. Therefore, nothing that we can do will separate it. Not our sin, before the foundation of the world. Nothing will separate us from the love of God. And he will ultimately see us to completion as we are united with him one day in the world that is to come. That's why I think the doctrine of election is so sweet. Number four, the doctrine of election is important because it brings security and comfort to the believer. Since God's election was not based on anything in us, nothing will separate us from his presence, and he will see us to completion. Um, The doctrine of election brings comfort in sufferings and trials, because if God is ultimately sovereign, then we know that everything he works out in our life, even though with the things that we might not understand, the things that uh, at the time might cause us pain, that God is working those out for good in his glory. We don't have a God that's big enough uh, within the suffering that, I think, is discouraging. That's, that doesn't bring comfort. Number five, the doctrine of election fuels and emboldens evangelism. If we know that God has people that are out there who, through the proclamation of the gospel, he will regenerate their hearts and save them, that gives us great faith and confidence as we share the gospel. We don't have to worry. Was it, was it I didn't say this exact phrase the right way. I didn't share the gospel as clearly as I could have, therefore that person wasn't saved. It gives us great hope that even when we share the gospel terribly, God can use that and save. It gives us great hope. So all disciples are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And what we see throughout verse 2 is kind of a linear progression that I love. You see this, the way it works out, there's a cause according to the foreknowledge of God. There's a means in the sanctification of the Spirit, and there's an end. There's a goal. The goal being obedience. 
let's look at let's look at how uh, Peter breaks this down, uh, the cause. And notice all throughout this too, the the Godhead, three in one, the Trinity. Every person is at work here. It's beautiful. Uh, the God, the Father, is for. Uh, knowing and electing. The Spirit is sanctifying, uh, and Jesus Christ is the one who we are to obey and follow, sprinkling with his blood. We look at uh, we've the, the knowledge of God the Father. We looked at the election. Let's look at the sanctification of the Spirit. Uh, a guy by the name of Douglas Moo says, the election of believers is achieved through the work of the Holy Spirit who draws people to faith in Christ, sears their salvation, and empowers them to live Godly life. The Spirit is what sets us apart and sanctifies us. R.C. Sproul in his commentary says it like this This sanctification includes all the Spirit's operations in setting sinners apart from sin, including regeneration and faith, and purifying them for God's service, which is progressive sanctification. Does that make sense? So the Spirit is the one who regenerates us, who changes our hearts, who makes us new creations, and the Spirit is the one who continually transforms us as we grow in Christ likeness. Okay? And the goal of this spirit is obedience to Christ. Say there, uh, obedience to Christ. This is the last part of the goal. You're not saved, redeemed. Uh, in, you're not saved by your obedience. You're saved to obey. Does that make sense? And I think going back to what I said originally about foreknowledge, if we have a mentality that foreknowledge means God looks out and sees who would choose him and then saves those, that that's a form of works-based religion. Because in a sense, God owes someone salvation because of their choice, and they're saved by their obedience. Okay, the Bible in Ephesians 2 says, you're, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is the gift. So I think faith is a gift. Salvation is a gift that God gives us. We're not saved by our obedience. We're saved for obedience. This is why God grants us faith. This is why he gives us a spirit to obey. So a way that you want to confirm your election, you want to know that you're really in the faith, is to Look at your obedience. This is what it says in 2 Peter 1. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Does that make sense? So a mark of a genuine believer is obedience. Be eager to make your calling and election sure. We can't conclude that for the elect, obedience doesn't matter. God made this choice, so you know what I do doesn't really matter. My will doesn't. My choices don't really have a, a bearing on this. If that was the case, First Peter would end right there, right? Praise God, you're saved. There would be no need for commands. Yet all throughout First Peter we see commands. Obedience matters. Make your election uh, op- confirm your election. Uh, obedience proves the genuineness of. Your election. So, in other words, I, I think we could say a person who claims to be a disciple of Jesus yet walks in disobedience and unrepentant faith may not, in fact, be a Christian because obedience is the goal. Next, after obedience, we see this phrase, the sprinkling with his blood. Now, this is weird, right? For us, sprinkling with blood, not a phrase I use often in my common vernacular. What does that mean? We're chosen by God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. We get that, right? We've gotten that progression. What is this sprinkling of blood? What does that mean? And when we come to uh, verses or a phrase in the Bible that we kind of don't get, that confuses us, the first thing we have to do as students of God's word is look at the context. So is there, other, is there an other place in the letter that talks about blood or sprinkling? So as you read through 1 Peter, you see just down from this uh, passage in 1 Peter 17. 
It says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we were ransomed from feudal ways, from our former ignorance, by the blood of Jesus. And Peter says that the blood of Jesus is not some sort of willy-nilly, flippant thing. It's more valuable and precious than gold and silver. It's infinitely valuable as the blood of Jesus. It has power over sin. That's how we were ransomed. To be ransomed means to be redeemed by the payment demanded for someone's return. So God bought us out of sin, uh, enslavement to Satan and death with the blood of Jesus. If you are a Christian this morning, you were bought with the blood of Jesus, not with a perishable thing or some meaningless thing, with Jesus' own blood. I heard a sermon uh, this week where a pastor said, any pattern of life that you are walking in that is not obedient to Jesus means that you are scorning the blood. Because if Jesus' blood is infinite and it is powerful, it has brought us out of sin, Satan, and death, to continue to walk in that way, in our former ignorance, walking in disobedience, is essentially to say that Jesus' blood isn't really that powerful. Jesus' blood isn't really infinitely valuable. Does that make sense? You guys picking up what I'm putting down? So when we are living in disobedience, we're scorning the blood. We're treating the blood with contempt. And Paul's reminding it, I think, through this readers, what it means to obey, what it cost God for you to obey the blood of his son, Jesus. Where else do we see the word blood or sprinkling in, in 1 Peter? Maybe we don't, and we need to look at the surrounding context of the New Testament. And we see this verse in Hebrews 10, 22. Uh, the, the context of this is, is how the writer of Hebrews is assuring those to have assurance of faith that they can draw near to God in Christ because of his sacrifice once and for all. And he says in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. There's another verse of sprinkling. So it has an idea of cleansing. When we look at the overarching thing of the Bible, and we look at what is sprinkling in reference to in the Old Testament, we see great significance and history in the Old Testament. Uh, sprinkling in the Old Testament was used to seal a covenant. So in Exodus 24:8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people. Imagine just taking blood, he's throwing it on the people, they're getting sprinkled with blood as a way of sealing the covenant. It says, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So in other words, sprinkling of blood is a way of ensuring a new covenant, which we have in Christ, that we have been made clean by the blood of Christ. But on the other hand, sprinkling of blood continually refers to a continual cleansing, a purification that happens all throughout the Christian's life as the blood of, of Christ is, is continually applied to us, making us uh, more holy and pure. So there's a once and for all and a continuation of holiness that we are into growing. And this is another true mark of a disciple that they are growing in holiness. So that's why I think this, this is getting at. We're saved by God in the spirit for obedience, growing in holiness. That's where he's going. Does this mark your life? Growing in holiness. Learning to obey Jesus more of his commandments in all of life. He is becoming more of your Lord, more of the king, more of the ruler. 
Uh, think with me on these questions. If you are a Christian, can you trace growth in this over the last couple months, years, our history as a Christian, growth in this? What are you spending your time on, your money, your energy that has changed over the years? What do you feed your mind and soul? How has that changed? Are your thoughts, words, actions, attitudes, emotions more in line with the will, goodness, and holiness of God as they were before? These are questions that we should ask ourselves if we are growing in holiness and obedience. I think this is one of the great joys of being a pastor and shepherd and, and leader in a church is watching as the word of God is preached, God's people grow in holiness. It has been a great joy in the life of this church to watch God's people grow in holiness and obedience. As I think back even two years ago, my own life, where God has taken us and where he has continued to shape us and mold us and form us into his image. It is awesome. And, and this is, it kind of seems like this overflow is, is probably why Peter comes out with this, may grace and peace be multiplied, right? Like this is not just a little, have a little helping, have a sample. Multiplied, grace and peace. Peter's reminding his readers that this great overflow in reflection upon the gospel, that it ends in this blessing. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. It seems like the wonder, the beauty, the greatness of redemption worked out on display by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit causes Peter to voice this blessing on behalf of his readers. Bless you. Just as God has shown you grace and has brought you peace in Christ, may that abound in your life. And would that be the way that we close and leave forth this day? May God's grace and peace be multiplied to you. As we reflect upon the gospel, as we see this laid out so clearly for us, foreknown and elected by the Father, sanctified in the Spirit, for obedience and for holiness, would, we, would grace and peace be multiplied to us? That's our third point this morning. All disciples of Jesus are set apart in receiving abundant grace and peace. I pray that we would take time as we sing a new song this morning, as we reflect upon this, as we come forward in communion, that we would think about this. As we think and see the grace of God shown to us in Christ, that it would sink deeper into our hearts, that the peace of God would dwell in our hearts, would be characterized by this. People wouldn't have to guess what we believe and who we are. They would know by the way we live, by what we spend our time on, by by how we use our home, by how we use our hobbies, by everything that we do, that we are set apart. We have a new father. We have a new citizenship. We are exiled, elect exiles in Des Moines, Kent, SeaTac, Federal Way, wherever we are. Amen? Let's pray.